0: gratitude, prayer, and blessings. Live from Jerusalem, this is General Ike, Building Jerusalem. with Joshua Fox, principal software architect at Freitas in Jerusalem. Joshua uh, helps organize Less Wrong and Slate Star Codex meetups in Tel Aviv and Jerusalem, and has previously worked with the Machine Intelligence Research Institute. Joshua, hi.
1: Glad to meet you. Mm-hmm. Glad to be here on the podcast.
0: It's uh, it's a real pleasure to finally have you on. I'm interested in um, the role that you take. In, in organizing uh, these sorts of events in Jerusalem. The rationality stuff, the Slate Star Codex stuff, the less wrong stuff. Uh, this sort of thing will be known to some people and not known at all to others. So I was hoping you could start by sort of giving some background as to what these sorts of things are. Sure, so
1: let's talk about the meetups. Now, Tel Aviv is the center of uh, most elements of Israeli culture. More people live there, there's more high-tech there. And we have a very strong group there. We meet actually every week. Once a month, there's a lecture meetup. Uh, And then two weeks off from that, we do game night, which is really socializing. And then one week off from each of those, there's a pub night. I personally go uh, only once a month because it's a long way for me. But I do help organize the lectures. And it's probably one of the strongest less wrong groups in the world. When I say less wrong, Slate Star Codex, Rationality, Effective Altruism... It's all the same group of people. There are different circles of interest, but we like to hang out together. So whatever title you want to give it, it's really the same thing. Now, that's Tel Aviv, but I work in Jerusalem. And I grew up in Jerusalem until age 10. So I'm very close to this city, although right now I live in an exurb. I live uh, 40 minutes out in a moshav. So I do want to boost this in Jerusalem and organize some meetups. And we did that. Back in 2010, we had a meetup with... uh, a leading researcher in a related area, Carl Schulman, and with uh, Anna Solomon, who organizes the Center for uh, um, Applied Rationality, which is an organization we can talk about too if you want. Fascinating people, fascinating work. So they came here, and we got together in a cafe. uh, And then six months ago, we had a meetup in Freitas actually, where we talked mostly about Scott Alexander's unsung book, his blog. But really, it's a chance to hang out, and we're organizing another one in approximately three weeks, uh, approximately the beginning of November. Please contact me if anyone's interested, it's not hard to find me on Facebook and the internet. And uh, even if you missed that one, just let's get together, because we love hanging out with each other. We're generally pretty geeky, non-sociable people, but when you get us going on these topics, ask me about the infinite ordinals, ask me about the axiom of choice. About artificial intelligence, existential risk, about quantum mechanics, multi-world interpretation, etc., etc. We love this stuff. So, if you're into all these
0: things or any of these things, please contact me. Okay. So, for someone who isn't into any of those things and has okay. no idea what you're talking about, uh huh. What What's like the first thing that someone should understand about the world you're in?
1: We want to make the world better. We want to make the world. Perfect. Now, we're smart, we know that's not going to happen tomorrow, we know it might not happen for a long time, we know that we individually might only make a small change, but that's what we want. In fact, it seems almost trivially obvious, doesn't it? But very few people actually think that way. Either they don't care, or they try to make one little thing in the corner better, which is good, but we just want the world to be as good as it can globally, and of course each of us does whatever he can. That's the philosophy, that's what we try for. On a practical level, I think we just love a bunch of topics and we love to get together and socialize. What these topics have in common is a very interesting topic that we'll probably have to discuss at length, because I just listed a few, and uh, finding what's in
0: common sounds like a, like a good puzzle in itself. So when you say we, mm-hmm. it sounds like there's a coherent group of people here. Yes. Who, who is we? How did we get started? There are different circles, different groups of people. So if we want to talk about uh, Tel
1: Aviv, for some reason a bunch of software engineers show up, but then again in Tel Aviv, that's what people do for a living. And as I say, they're people who have come together because we enjoy being with each other as we talk about a lot of ver- about things that interest us, which I mentioned. But there are other circles that kind of overlap with us. So there's a circle of effective altruism. These are people who, who try to find, as I said, the way to give charity or to work where they can make the most difference. Now, they often are not as grandiose as us. They often try to get bed nets to people in Africa, uh, doing incredible good in the world. That's another circle of people. Another circle of people is the futurists. So you may have heard of Ray Kurzweil and his singularity idea. He's into future tech, uh, where we're going to have self-driving cars, Internet of Things, virtual reality. That's all cool. But it turns out that it's a different circle that has some overlap with us. Maybe not even a lot of overlap. There's people who were attracted by some incredible fiction that came out on the Internet, which includes Unsung by Scott Alexander and Harry Potter and the Methods of Rationality by Eliezer Yudkowsky. Now, some people just like it because these are great books and they're a lot of fun. But some people are drawn into our circle because they read all these things. There are other circles. For example, the circle we're interested in Artificial Intelligence at Existential Risk, which is to say how to prevent the destruction of humanity. Now, a lot of people are creeped out by these very concepts, as well they should, because I don't want anyone to die, much less all of humanity. But ever since the Cold War, you can't deny that it's a real possibility. It's not a story. It's something that very much could happen. Specifically, artificial intelligence, however, uh, is more science-fictional to many people. Since I've been involved in this... uh, the topic of artificial intelligence existential risk has come into the forefront. It's become more mainstream, leading people are talking about it, you know, in the top uh, newspapers and so on, which doesn't make it more or less relevant or right, but it does mean that it's become a very important topic that a lot of people
0: are talking about. So that's another circle. That's actually how I got into this whole thing. Okay, so when you say this whole thing, I'm Mm -hmm. hearing a lot of Uh, you say, overlaps with the people who are into AI, existential risk, futurist, effective altruist. Mm -hmm. What's at the center of all these circles? What is your circle? Uh, You know, I don't know if there's a
1: center. One thing that we all have in common is that we are individualists, and we don't join groups, and we all say, I'm not a sheep. So there's no central thing, and uh, you can't put labels on people. Some of these circles, by the way, are almost disjoint and actually don't socialize a lot. These things change rapidly as well. The whole futurist thing, the kind of freaky future tech, space travel, whatever, is actually less important now to my circle of people than it was 20 years ago, because we just see technology progressing naturally as fast as it progresses, but we have some very important core topics, like artificial intelligence X risk that we focus on. So if you ask what's the center, there is no center. You might say that the center is rationality, Now I'll tell you what's what we think rationality is, what the word means to us. It means accomplishing your goals as effectively as you can. A lot of these things sound really trivial once you get into it, but you better bet most people in this world do not do that. They don't even try. So decide what your goals are. Now, hopefully your goals are good. Hopefully your goals are virtuous. Your goals may just be to get a job, to get married, to save the world, whatever those goals may be. Now, do whatever gets those goals done. It sounds trivial, it is most certainly not easy. And you might say that that's at the center of it all. But the reality is that it's a great big memeplex,
0: which is a collection of ideas that just comes together. Okay, so I can't, I can't just uh, let the idea of uh, existential risk float by without asking you about it. Can you spell that out a bit for someone who might not, who might not be familiar with the artificial intelligence research at the moment? Sure. So, the worst thing that can
1: happen is the death of all humanity or the destruction of all future human value from human civilization. Sorry for these harsh words. Again, the specter of atomic war from the Cold War should at least convince you that I'm not talking purely science fiction when I raise the concept. But this, if it's terrible tragedy for one person to die, or six people to die, then it's much more of a tragedy for six billion people to die. That's a good fraction of humanity, but perhaps the biggest tragedy of all is for all future human possibility to be wiped out, which would be the case if all humans died, or if the potential of human civilization were somehow wiped out. I gave the example of nuclear war just now, because it's one that we're sadly familiar with. You might say there are other potential risks, which are either big risks or small, that's a point for discussion, global pandemics, an asteroid hitting Earth, and so on. But the specific topic of artificial intelligence is the one that uh, has interested me since November 2005 when I was cruising the internet wasting time and on the website of the Singularity Institute which is now called the Machine Intelligence Research Institute. And the, the theme is this. One day there will be an artificial intelligence as smart as human beings. And smart means it's trying to accomplish some goal. Now, one way of accomplishing a goal is to be smarter because that helps you do pretty much anything. And we've already posited that human engineers will bring it up to this level and it is at a human level so it can maybe improve its own intelligence by adding computer chips or by improving the software code and then it's more intelligent and then it's even more capable of making itself more and more and more intelligent until it's vastly more intelligent than humans and then it will be very capable of accomplishing its goal. We have better hope. That its goal is something that we want. To take a, a trivial example, let's imagine that the first one has a, a toy goal, just an experiment of getting together as many paper clips as it can. Now, uh, what would it do? Well, it might go to Amazon.com and buy some paper clips, make a little pile. It might find a way to make paper clips from wire. Remember, it's somewhat smart. It might find a way to make money and buy even more paper clips or build a factory. Build a factory or mines to mine for more iron. As it gets smarter and smarter, it may want to convert all of planet Earth and the whole solar system to paper clips until eventually you have a ball of paper clips expanding at the speed of light and enveloping the galaxy. Now you might say this is ridiculous. That's not intelligent. Okay, forget the word intelligent. It was set up to accomplish a goal. Sounds to me like it's accomplishing the goal very well. You think that's a stupid goal? Well, okay. Let's give it a better one. And that is the hard part. Defining the goal and making sure that it sticks to whatever goal we give it and it doesn't stray off of that because of a bug. When I first got into this stuff, it was fascinating. I started to donate some money, and I got involved in it as, a, as an organization. Uh, at the time, we were still freaks on the Internet. We're still freaks, but, as I say, it's become... Part of the normative discourse, you have this in major publications, for what that's worth, and the topic is becoming seriously discussed. There's still a bit of confusion about it, but our position is not simply one group of bloggers competing against another. It's spread into the mainstream. And we can discuss that a little bit more if you want. But that that is the concept of artificial intelligence existential risk, and it's something that I'm very much interested
0: in. And how did all this stuff, the, this artificial intelligence, existential risk stuff, uh, spawn a community? You, you know, uh,
1: there's always been communities of people who get together. Back in the 1990s, there were the extropians. As I say, they were into futurism, expanding human potential, transhumanism, which means taking what we value in humans and making it more so. These were the extropians, the transhumanists who said... If it's good to be healthy, then it's good to continue to be healthy. If you want an 8-year-old not to die, then you probably want an 80-year-old to be healthy and not to die. Or an 800-year-old or an 8,000-year-old to be healthy and not to die. Unless, sadly, they choose to. That's called expanding human potential. It's called transhumanism. And that was the 90s. And this group, loose group of people, many of them of course in the Bay Area, changed, transmogrified and continue to be in touch, never as a well-defined group. We're not sheep, we're not really joiners, you might say. But Ezra Kowski, who was the founder of the Machine Intelligence Research Institute, did a lot to bring together a community. Now, he's a character, a real character, but he wrote blogs, an online ebook, book uh, and this fiction, which I mentioned earlier, Harry Potter and the Methodist Rationality. And amazingly, amazingly, it brought people together. It, formed a focal point of people who understand and communicate with each other, but now it's also gone beyond that. So if you ask who is interested in artificial intelligence uh, x-risk, it's spread into new institutes at Oxford, at Cambridge, at Berkeley, even at Harvard-MIT. So it's gone outside this group of weirdos and to a larger group
0: of very smart weirdos at these more mainstream institutions. So Eliezer Yudkowsky was uh, instrumental in this transformation of this disparate group into a more centralized group? Not centralized, but people who know
1: each other and are willing to take the risk of their careers to even talk about this. When I first got into this stuff in 2005, I was a little embarrassed to even talk. It's okay, I'm willing to be treated as a weirdo, but only in the right context. I don't want to be treated weirdo in other contexts. Certainly in work, I would never mention it. I still wouldn't really mention it. And he helped bring this to ground. Again, the Internet is full of people babbling and saying nonsense and stupidity. And it was hard to distinguish in the year 2005 this topic from the general babble on the Internet. And he has brought this idea to a much wider audience. Of course, not him alone. We have Professor Nick Bostrom of Oxford who just wrote a very important book, Superintelligence, published in 2014, and many other people but
0: Eliezer is a very important character in this world. Is uh, the community as you see it, is is it different now to how it was when you got into it? Well, yes, exactly as I said.
1: Uh, at, for the first uh, nine years of my interest in the topic, it was just me in meat space <laughs> here in Israel. I didn't uh, have anybody to talk to about this topic in the country, except maybe my family members. Uh, I did actually get out uh, and meet people, but they were outside the circle. Um, I can take pride that I gave perhaps the first lectures in a four-credit university course in the world on the topic at Helder University. It's not saying much because I don't think it actually went anywhere, but I got out there, I met people, I talked to people. But still, that was outsiders. They just listened with a bit of interest. But uh, later, we in Israel, as an example again of community. We in Israel did get together three, four years ago and start meeting in Tel Aviv. So I think the story is similar to what people elsewhere in the world may have experienced. When Eliezer started it 16 years ago, it was just some crazy kids. And now we we know each other. Most people are in software, I have to admit. We're just professionals working in the industry. But uh, we feel stronger for it. And it's not just for the fun of knowing you're one of the cool kids. It's because of the desire to save the world.
0: A desire to save the world? Yes. What's the, what's the current team strategy for saving the world? There's are different teams. There's the strategy
1: of the Machine Intelligence Research Institute, which I used to be affiliated with. We can talk about that. I still donate to them and I very much support them. So we can talk about their strategy, but there are other groups as well. And honestly, I'm not a fanatic just for MIRI. Possibly other strategies may have their success as well. But let's talk specifically about MIRI's strategy. And it goes like this. Once an AI is smarter than us, we can do nothing to stop it. That's what smarter means. You can't just turn it off. It will stop you from turning it off. Not because it wants to live, it's just a machine, but because that will stop it from achieving its goals, such as making paper clips or hopefully some other goal, right? You cannot stop it. You must define it from day one to do what you want. So this requires two things. One is you have to give it the right goals, and the second is you have to make sure it sticks to the goals and not stray from the goals because of a bug. So let's talk about what the right goals have to be. The right goals have to accomplish the full range of human values. We humans want a lot of things. As Eliezer says in one of his beautiful blog posts, he talks about uh, Azatoth, the blind idiot god, described in the fantastic fiction of uh, H.P. Lovecraft this mad, mindless creature burbling at the center of the universe. And he uses this as a metaphor for evolution, which is, of course, blind and an idiot. It took billions of years to simply create us. And it created us, everything that we do. So it's a sort of a god, of course, metaphorically. And what did it create in us? What are the desires we have? Well, we have the desires to eat, reproduce, sex, honor, respect, joy, a wide mixture of desires. We are, of course, not puppets of evolution, we are us. Evolution merely formed us, we are not its slaves. For that reason, we can use birth control, for example, which if evolution could want anything, it would not want that. So, we are formed by evolution as this complicated mixture of desires. They must all be fulfilled by a value that, we, that the artificial intelligence works towards. Let's take some examples. We want to be happy, that's something we all want. So why can't the AI very easily fulfill that by shooting us all up with super heroin and keeping us in boxes, smiling all the time? Well, obviously we want to be happy, but we want more things too. We want, so another example is we want to be alive, very much, very important to most of us. So the artificial intelligence can easily satisfy that by, uh, again, putting us all in boxes and making sure we stay alive forever. Let's take an almost trivial example. What if we're given a life that's a paradise, like as envisioned by some religions? The New Jerusalem, to speak of, since I know that's one of the themes of the podcast. Well, the Christian heaven is boring. You sit, you play the harp all day, which is cool, but you know, I think I want to do a little bit more than that. You sit in a gold castle, gold's cool too, come on, I have a life ahead of me. How do you keep people from being bored, and happy, and engaged, and excited, and challenged, for eternity as we get smarter and smarter. Because remember, one thing that many of us want is to be smarter. As I become, if we all fulfill all our values, how can we balance this crazy mixture of values which was implanted in us by the blind idiot God, Azatoth, which which Eliezer calls God-shatter, again referring to a piece of fiction, which is it's as if the God, evolution, has shattered us into this mixture of desires. So, if you say, cure cancer. That is a human desire. It's something I want, certainly. Eliminate cancer in this world. What's the easiest way to eliminate cancer? Eliminate Kill everyone, people. instantly. Now, all these things you might answer, that's silly, that's stupid. That's not intelligent. Well, that's not my point. The point is we're going to build an artificial intelligence that may do some machine learning to find a cure for cancer. You know what? That already exists. Although, of course, it's not a general intelligence. In various research labs, they're out looking for a cure for cancer. What about making money? There are artificial intelligences today making money on Wall Street. Again, not generally intelligent. So we will create this thing. What will it do? What will its value be? Very hard to define precisely. The second... So Miri is actually not primarily working on that, I have to say. These are incredibly difficult challenges, although there are some preliminary directions. But the second thing is to avoid value drift because of bugs. So look... We know that every piece of software has bugs. I know this as a professional in the area. It happens. If you give it a goal and there's a drift away from that original goal, uh, how do you ensure that it that, that doesn't happen, and it doesn't drift away? Because if it drifts away, remember, you are doomed. There is nothing you can do to stop it. It is smarter than you. Now, for this, there's some fascinating areas of mathematics, and I'm not an expert in these areas, but for the sort of people with our brain Structure. We just love these concepts and ideas, and I'm just going to take two minutes to talk about one of them. I think many of the audience might just love this concept. Okay, what is the Google digit of pi? Is it even or odd? So, uh, you know, three point one four one five da 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 da.
0: Well, you know what? What we we don't know if the Google digit of pi is even or odd. Um, When you say Google, you mean. 1 followed by 100 zeros? Correct. So you have the first
1: digit is 3, then the next digit is 1, 3.1415, the fifth, the sixth digit. So let's go way, way out there. Nobody knows what that digit is. What is the probability it's even? This is an easy question. I'm going to go ahead and say 50%. That's correct. That probability has to be 50%. Nothing else makes any sense. But that actually poses a problem because if in reality it is either even or odd, one or the other, absolutely by the rock-solid rules of mathematics. This is not a random coin flip in Las Vegas or something like Mm -hmm. that. So, using the standard rules of mathematics, you have to calculate uh, expectation, which says, uh, you know, the value of something is the probability you'll get it times its value. The probability of... If you have a half chance of getting $100, the value of that is $50. So, half your chance is... True. Let's say it's actually odd, so that half chance is no problem. But let's imagine that it's actually even. You're conditioning on half chance of something false. Now, there's a rule of mathematics that says false implies everything. If you accept falsehood, then pigs fly. That's a basic rule of logic. If you re- learned it in Logic 101, I don't know. So this causes a breakdown of everything. If I ask, what is the probability that in one minute I'm going to be a billionaire? I have a half chance of that being true. Remember, false implies everything. There's a half chance that in a minute I'm going to be a billionaire. So therefore the value of that is half a billion dollars. This is absurd. This is ridiculous. So it's actually, what I just said, is a fascinating concept in mathematics which has been researched in mainstream academia. For example, Professor Chaim Geifman... Uh, who's both from Israel and from say, Columbia University. So I just touched on a small area of mathematics which fascinates some people without, without any relation to the Machine Intelligence Research Institute. I believe it's fascinating. And, of course, we can talk much more about the mathematics behind this and the sort of research they do. But, uh, and why the specific little mathematical puzzle I gave is related to this question of an, of an artificial intelligence examining its own source code and checking that it does what we expected. Well, I'll go into that more if you want in detail, but I'd just like to say that this
0: material is fascinating in its own right. Okay, well, for now I want to switch gears. Sure. Uh, You said that one of the ways that the world could be saved is through the raising up of an artificial intelligence that's much smarter than we are and uh, has the same goals that we do, has the same values that we do. Mm You mentioned there are other ways as well. What are the other systems? So, are you talking about destroying the world or saving it? Oh, saving it. Okay. So, earlier we talked
1: about destroying the world, which of course is terrible and more important than anything. Even if we don't make the world into a much better place, let's at least stay alive. But now let's talk about making the world into a much better place. So, AI today, today is doing great things for us. Not just helping us search with Google, but as I say, it's searching for new Uh, pharmaceuticals that may help cure disease. Computer programs are doing good things. Now, a a true artificial general intelligence could do much more. Yes, let's set it to examining protein structures to finding a cure for cancer. Let's set it to optimizing transportation networks to get uh, food into Africa more effectively. By the way, that's one of the greatest challenges in Africa, simply transporting things efficiently. So, if we humans can do so much good, bad as well, but also good in this world, how much more so a smarter-than-human intelligence could do more of the same, better, than we do? I just gave some examples. The world could become a much, much better place if we have a servant which is smarter than us and can figure things out for us. That is the promise of our artificial general intelligence alongside the peril. I know that the theme of this podcast is Jerusalem. So Jerusalem, in some religions, is related to both Heaven and an Apocalypse, to the best possible world and to the worst possible world. Often the two come together. Often one imagines that in the religious storytelling that there'll be some terrible war at the end of the world, an Armageddon, and that will be followed by a Messianic age in Judaism. Christianity talks about New Jerusalem as an otherworldly place. So Jerusalem is very central in the human imagination in this theme. Uh, Sadly, there's tensions around atom bombs, which could mean that that this place is the center of a true apocalypse. I most certainly hope not. But Israel, and of course Jerusalem, its capital, is at the heart of Israel, is a leader in technologies that are helping humanity become much better. We are the world's leaders in water purification and water recycling we are creating technologies that help the world greatly. So both on a religious level and on a practical level, Jerusalem is connected to making the world a much better place, but also the risk of making it a worse place. Some people dismiss all this as religious fantasy, which of course some of it is. But uh, if we're going to connect the theme here, just because something is a religious fantasy doesn't mean it can't come true. For example... Angels are said to have wings. But you know what? Airplanes have wings. Those actually happened. So this, these stories, even though they can be seen merely as metaphors or myths, uh, also relate to something very deep and very real in the human psyche. And uh, that's the connection that we can draw also to these themes and to this city that we live
0: in and love. This, uh, this guy at the center of it, Eliasy Yudkovsky... You said he has, a, he has a plan for saving the world, That's yes. this Machine Intelligence Research Institute. Yes. And that there are other branches of what he's doing that are also sure. crucial to this, to this effort. Could you tell me more about that? Sure. So I can go in two directions. I can talk about other institutes that are not part of
1: Mary, and which have other ways of working that uh, maybe may sound a little less far out. Mary is very hardcore on this stuff. But I can also t- talk about Eliezer's other projects, So let's talk a couple minutes about his other projects. So he was one of the inspirations behind the Center for Applied Rationality that uh, I mentioned earlier. Anna Solomon is one of their leaders, and they develop practical techniques for accomplishing your goals. So they may, I'm I'm not an expert, they may may include introspection, asking yourself what the goals are, making sure that you're not having self-defeating behaviors, and goodness knows all of humanity does that, how to talk to other people. They have these concepts where you each ask each other, what would it take for you to convince me that you're right? So each person really considers what would make them change their mind on both sides. So there's these techniques, these methods, and they have workshops in the Bay Area, which a lot of people have gone to and enjoyed. Uh, Very practical, down-to-earth, not end of the world, but if we can make more people rational and accomplishing goals, and if some of those goals involve helping humanity, well, all the better. Right? And uh, Eliezer himself, uh, as a person, as I said, he published this great fan fiction, uh, which I recommend to everybody, Harry Potter and Methods of Rationality, that drew people in. And he has the full range of interests that, uh, that I mentioned earlier. Things that seem blatantly obvious, like transhumanism. Of course I'm transhuman. Of course I want humanity to fulfill all their desires beyond what they can today. Of course. Factor of altruism. Of course, if I want on such moments as I wish to help my fellow humans, of course I want you to do it effectively and not ineffectively. So he wrote some great blog posts that I recommend called The Sequences, and you can Google them, in which he sets out his philosophy. Fascinating readings, and he's a great writer. And there's
0: a there's another figure that is uh, becoming more and more popular in this community. Uh, Mr. Scott Alexander, or Dr. Scott Alexander. Yes. Could you tell me a bit about him and what he's doing? Yeah, he's one of the cool kids. He's a psychiatrist uh, until recently in Michigan. I think he's moved
1: out to the Bay Area to be with all the other folks. And uh, he just fascinating author. I recommend Slate Star Codex, his blog. Um, his best known blog post, one of one of his best, and also coincidentally related to Jerusalem, is called Meditations on Moloch. And of course, uh, Moloch was a Canaanite deity most famously worshipped here in Jerusalem, a kilometer from where we sit, in Gehenna, the valley of the sons of Hinnom, where some of the ancient Judeans sacrificed their children in a fire. So they worshipped this Canaanite deity, and at least according to the Hebrew story, did so in a a horrific way. And Malach has become a symbol of a horrific god. So I recommend this blog post. I'm not going to try to summarize it all, because Scott is way smarter than me. But he uses as his theme a poem by Allen Ginsberg, a beat poet. Now, if you would ask me, I cannot stand beat poetry. But somehow Scott merges this into a blog post on a very important concept, which I can summarize boringly as negative-sum competitions, where Las Vegas, as an example, is the city of glitz and show and spending money, where everybody is competing with each other for something in which nobody can escape this competition because, well, people are trying to make money and they have to compete. Anyway, Scott does it much better than me. I thought I would bring in the Jerusalem Connection as well. So that's one thing that Scott does. Uh, He he actually had some other blogs as well. He published on Wrong, which was a group blog founded by Eliezer. Lots of good stuff written by Scott. He also wrote fiction called Unsong. You can find that on the Internet. Brilliant stuff. First of all, at its heart, it's fantasy inspired by Jewish religion. C.S. Lewis famously wrote Fantasy Inspired by Christianity. There's plenty of fantasy out there inspired by Celtic Druid religions. But very little inspired by the Jewish religion. Scott does it. He's brilliant. The themes I've discussed up to now pervade his fiction, whether it's the risks of artificial intelligence, a factor of altruism...
0: And so on. But in reality, it's just a great piece of fiction that I recommend. And, and how do you see... I mean, I see, I see what you're saying as a sort of two-part community. And one is it's like a group of people who get together because they enjoy each other's company or are interested yes. in similar things. And the other is it's sort of a, a group of people who are heading somewhere very specific and have very strong ideas about how to get there. Yes. And so I, you've, you spoke to him a bit about um, the Machine Intelligence Recess Institute, which is yes. Eliezer's pet project. What does, does Scott have an equivalent project or something that he's doing that is his thrust? No, he doesn't, at
1: least as far as I know. He's a psychiatrist. Um, the great majority of us are not going to dedicate our lives to a specific humanity-saving projects, and that's okay. Because, in fact, the best that most of us can do is to donate money. I don't know what Scott donates, that's not the point I'm making, but it is what I do, I donate money. Because you see, let's take the example of cancer research, a very important goal. If somebody decides they want to reduce the scourge of cancer, I'll tell them, you know what, go go make money and donate. Because unless you personally have the brains and the ability to become a biologist, what else are you going to do? There was this fad of wearing pink ribbons. You know what, if that encourages people to get mammograms, whatever, good for them. No. Donate as much as you can to the most effective cancer research institute you can find. Example. But now the other example, which I'm talking about now, is artificial intelligence risk. There can be other things. I mentioned earlier effective altruism. Bed nets to prevent uh, mosquito-carried malaria is apparently a very effective way to donate your money to save actual human lives, much less far out in science fictional than some things I'm discussing. Uh, of course, what I just said about Skim needs to be researched. So you find somebody who's done some research and, you know, you do your best. Nothing's perfect, but you try to find out how you can donate your money. So you asked a minute ago about people who just like hanging out, which is very important, and about things that people can do to make the world better. For most of us, that involves donating money. I know that some people say, well, that's just money, go do something. And I'll say, well... You get your warm fuzzies in one way, and you help humanity in another. If you want to feel good, that's great. I like that too. If you want to help, then figure out the best way to help. Of course, there may be ways to help, other than giving money or becoming into a, ded- becoming a dedicated researcher. Uh, there's a limited role for spreading the word, for reaching out to influential people and bringing them on board. Uh, there is a place for that. So those are some things that we
0: can do to make the world better, even when we're just hanging out and enjoying each other's company. Cool. Uh, that This thing you just said of reaching out to influential people and spreading the word. Yes. Uh, this is something you mentioned before before we started the interview that this is something that Elias is already doing and that this is something central to his, uh, to his work. Could you elaborate a bit on that? I, I can't say specifically what he does. I don't really track his life. But I know
1: that Neri has done a lot of important work like this reaching out to leading professors, and it is difficult because, obviously, the leading people in any field are very busy, and they have a lot of nuts and weirdos bothering them. Hmm. Moreover, and this is even worse, people don't want to risk their reputations. It turns out, and we have good evidence, that a lot of leading researchers in artificial intelligence agreed with the basic thesis that I told before. Of course, they may have some differences of opinion, but they're embarrassed to be seen as weirdos. So it was necessary to expand the Overton window, as we say, to expand the scope of what can be considered not career-risking by very gradually bringing people in. There was one case I'm just going to highlight that that really shows this. In, I think, 2008, the uh, AAAI, the uh, American Association for Artificial Intelligence, issued a report on artificial intelligence x-risk. And it was very bland. It was like, yes, there's a risk, but we don't know, and maybe, maybe, maybe. And it turned out, a few years later, that many, although not all of the authors of that report, basically were convinced by the more hardline story that I told, but they just weren't going to come out with it. And then maybe a couple years ago, they more clearly expressed their support for this more uh, definitive, hardline story, you might say. The riskier story to one's career, that is. Uh, Again, I'm not going to claim that everybody agrees with us or anything of the sort, but definitely some of them did come on board publicly once they felt that they weren't risking their careers. So has done a very good job on that. Uh, For example, Professor Stuart Russell, the author of the world's leading textbook on artificial intelligence, got on board the train about four years ago. And the introduction of his book actually cites Eliezer, So it's read by millions of students. He took that risk of citing this unknown grade school dropout, and he goes around convincing his colleagues, and they listen to him. They're quite right not to listen to me or to certain other people, but they listen to him. Last year, he founded an institute at Berkeley, uh, the Center for Human Compatible Intelligence, something like that, that is working on these themes. By the way, MIRI is based in Berkeley, so they're able to collaborate closely. I just gave that as an example. Uh, Now actually, Russell is a little bit less extreme, you might say, a little bit more mainline. So he's willing to work on risks that are uh, shorter term than existential risk. For example, uh, are people going to be put out of work by artificial intelligence? Will self-driving cars be safe will there be special ethical challenges? Uh, And how about uh, robotic drones in warfare? going to kill people, that's the point, but is there any special risk around those? So he does uh, that sort of research, but he's definitely on board for the more far-out type of research, even if uh, some of this research is so difficult that uh, nobody is really ready to dive into it yet. That's one example of the expanding sphere that was partially influenced by Mary. What we have at Oxford and Cambridge, I think, was more closely influenced by Professor Nick Bostrom, but Mary had a part to play in that. At Cambridge, a new institute was founded, also with a similar theme, to do this sort of research. And at Oxford, Professor Bostrom has been running the Future of Humanity Institute for 10 years. They just founded a spin-off to focus more on artificial intelligence
0: futures. Uh, These things are not easy. The emergence of Elon Musk as a public figure must have been a a windfall for the community, roughly speaking.
1: There really is. So, Elon Musk was the inspiration for Iron Man in the movies. He first made his money in an internet startup, but then he was part of the PayPal mafia, as they call it. He was one of the founders of PayPal. He got rich, but he didn't stop there. He founded Tesla, which is the leading manufacturer of electric cars, also self-driving. SpaceX, which uh, is the leading private uh, spaceship company. He founded a number of other companies. So, uh, the mainstream looks up to him. He's a hero to many people who have nothing to do with all the stuff I've spoken about. But he is on board. He gave the first major donation to this area, $10 million in, I think, 2013, that he directed to the um, future, I think it's called the Future for Human Life at Harvard and MIT. He gave it to them so that they could distribute it to researchers, not just to Mary. And I think that's okay. I'm not just a fanatic for Mary. But giving a very significant amount of money, $10 million, he kicked this up to a higher level of funding, and he was able to come out, as it were, he was never in the closet on the subject, but he came up publicly and spoke about it, about other people out of the closet, and he also founded the um, OpenAI organization. They're doing research to advance artificial general intelligence with a strong understanding of safety. Now you can debate whether they have enough of a focus on safety, but the point is that Elon Musk has given this area mainstream credibility. I'll mention one more person, Peter Thiel, who founded PayPal along with Elon Musk and is also a billionaire. His profile is also high in the mainstream, although not quite as much as Elon Musk. And he was one of the earlier donors to Miri, giving on the orders of a half a million, a million dollars, as opposed to the 10 million we got later. But he was also somebody who spoke up early about
0: this topic back before it was mainstream. So if someone's listening to this and they feel like uh, what you're saying is really is moving and they don't have a lot of money to donate, is there anything else that they can do to help? Uh, so the first thing is
1: uh, learn about these topics. They're just fascinating. I enjoy them. I'm not here to fundraise to those people because the truth is they're not going to get on board until they decide that the uh, arguments we're making are, are correct. Uh, everybody has to decide for themselves how they're going to achieve their goal. That's the theme I told earlier of rationality. If we're going to talk about the concept of people donating money before they have a lot of money to donate, I'll tell you what to do. There's a very specific thing to do, and that is choose the charities that you feel are the most effective and donate a small amount to them every month. I'm not going to just say Mary. It could be uh, bed nets for Africa. The way to do this is to look for people who have researched it Try to determine if they from your perspective, the research is reliable, nothing's perfect, but do a little bit of research. By giving a little bit of money now, you'll get yourself in a habit. So now you may be giving a dollar a month, three dollars a month. When you get a little bit older and start making more money, you'll do more. By the way, universities work this way. Anyone here who's graduated from an American university gets letters begging for money from the moment they graduate, and they're still a poor, uh, they, have, they still have student debt. And they wonder, why is the university bothering me right now and spending money on on this? The answer is they want to get you in the habit. So I say get into the habit of supporting what you feel are the most important causes now
0: and expand your donation as your income increases. And if someone on the subject of university, if someone's just starting university now and wants a career that can make the, the biggest possible difference... What would you recommend? I recommend they go to 80,000 Hours.
1: There's a website. There's various uh, related organizations, which you can find on the Internet. Give well, giving what we can, and so on. And read about it and learn, because people have thought about these things. You know how it is nowadays. Anything you try to figure out, somebody has already researched. Read that. Decide if it makes sense to you. People have thought about this very carefully. they thought, for example, should you sell out to Wall Street Grub for money as hard as you can so that you can donate it to what you feel is a worthy cause. And there are some people who actually do that. I think they are very very virtuous. You know, like the medieval monks who suffered for God? These are people who suffer in horrible jobs because this Wall Street stuff is not enjoyable. But hey, it's money. So that's one approach. But 80,000 hours also researches whether maybe you should go into research. Maybe you're, you are going to find the cancer cure. Maybe you're not cut out for Wall Street, but you can go into policy so you can influence politics in your country in the right direction, eventually maybe become a politician or an advisor to direct your country in a way that you feel is important for humanity. So yeah,
0: people have done research on this topic. And if someone wants to come join um, your meetup group here or a similar meetup group somewhere else, how would they go about finding that? Uh, You know, we are so fragmented, but
1: the thing to look for is less wrong. Let me explain. LessWrong.com, as I said earlier, was a group blog, fascinating reading, good stuff. It basically stopped working. It shut down about three years ago, although now there are efforts to re- rebuild it. You can go to LesserWrong.com if you're interested in that. Nonetheless, the phrase LesserWrong has become our title uh, for these get-togethers, so you can search for it. You know what? Look for me in the Internet. It's easy to find anyone nowadays. and Just ask me. It's just cool to hang out with people people who can talk to you about uh, the uh, different orders of infinity or about uh, quantum mechanics and enjoy it and do it smart and actually understand what you're talking about, which is not necessarily me, but I just love talking about this stuff. We just like hanging out. And if your thing is Slate Star Codex or Unsung, we love that stuff too. Circles of people who enjoy being with each other. Once you get together, you can plot how to
0: make the world a better place. Cool. I want to just ask you finally about the Center for Applied Rationality. You mentioned that a bit earlier, but didn't really go into what it is and how it works. Do you tell us a bit about that?
1: You know, I'm not an expert. I've never been in any of their seminars, but look them up. I think they're uh, like rationality.org. Meanwhile, Myria is intelligence.org. And they have seminars in the Bay Area mostly, I think. Maybe occasionally they travel. And I mentioned earlier that they teach you these techniques, which some people have attested actually help them get things done, you know, a lot of it's not rocket science as the saying goes, and CIFAR has not necessarily invented all of these techniques. Different things work for different people. I don't know, one technique that some people find useful is Pomodoro, which just says that you set a timer for 25 minutes of concentrated work, and then it rings, and then you let yourself rest for five minutes. Sounds simple, but you put all these techniques together, and it may help you get things done with your life.
0: Um, so that's really what I know about them. Could you give an example of, of one of those techniques that you've found really helpful, either for yourself or for someone you know?
1: Well, no, not me. I cannot claim to have uh, studied the CIFAR stuff. It's, But, you know, it's just practical rationality, just the practical techniques of getting things done. So, um, you know, it's, it's simple things, like whenever you uh, are making an argument, think about what the other side would be. And whether you're just Getting carried away to make points for your own side without caring about whether it's real. Learning a list of biases. Again, this stuff is just fascinating reading. But if you learn about biases like availability bias, then you might be able to avoid it. Availability bias says that uh, if you can remember an example easily and then you jump on that example, you might be excessively attracted to that example, even though it's not really representative. It's not a really accurate way to think. You learn about other biases... Like uh, risk aversion, where people will go to extremes to avoid even small risks, They'll, they're much um, more willing to risk something to gain $100 than they're not willing to risk losing it. Even if, to them, if they're rich enough, it doesn't really make a difference, logically they should not be excessively averse to risk. By the way, that's why stock markets go up slowly and crash quickly, because of that, of that bias. So if you know this, then you can catch yourself and you can say, uh, no, in this case, I'm, I'm going to work differently. So that, that's an example, you know, a lot of things you just become a natural part of your life. I myself cannot say I'm attracted to, to that area, but I think the important point to take away from that is that it's a wide sphere of interests. Some of them overlap, some of them don't. And everybody in this world has to find their tribe. The people they like to hang out with. Uh for some of us who are nerdy geeks, it's hard to find that. Some of us find that by playing Magic the Gathering or other rainy games, some of us find it by going to hacker conventions.
0: But here some of us have found our tribe. Cool. And you just to wrap us up here, you talked about uh you talked about Jerusalem, the physical city, you talked about Jerusalem as a symbol of that that choice point between apocalypse and utopia when you just consider that in any of those ways what is your vision of a better Jerusalem?
1: Well I think Jerusalem has a very important part to place, place a very important part in making the world much better and as I said uh, Jerusalem is capital of Israel and Israeli technology is doing incredible things. We are the second uh, most important technology center after Silicon Valley a lot of this stuff is new ways to make advertisements, which is not that interesting. But a lot of it is simply making the world better. For example, Eye, self-driving cars, have the potential to radically decrease traffic deaths. Who would believe 100 years ago you could adopt this technology that would kill 50,000 people in the United States a year? Well, maybe Eye has a chance to reduce that. So we in Israel uh, are making contributions to the world in that way. Another way... Uh, for example, is represented by the Center for the Study of Rationality, founded by Professor Robert Aumann, the Nobel Prize laureate. So he got his start at the beginning of game theory, which was also the beginning of the Cold War, when American scientists tried to figure out how America could play this big game with the Soviet Union, where the price of losing was that everyone would die. Again, the theme of apocalypse. Amazingly, and uh, cross your fingers, but so far we've avoided that, partially because, as Professor Amund said, there were nuclear-armed bombers in the air 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. What an extreme of game theory! Now, since then, he's gone on to research more academic and mathematical areas of game theory, which, as I say, is Israel is very strong, and not just that institute, but all across Israel, we have leaders in these fields. Now, if we get back to the area of research of Mary, it is closely connected to game theory or decision theory, which is the question of what should the AI do at each step. Now, to you as a human, you do what you do, I don't know what your own personal way of acting is, but a computer does what it's programmed to do. And in the examples I discussed earlier, it's critically important that it does the right thing. Now, there is a decision theory we won't discuss now that involve a computer asking about itself what it itself would do. That's called reflexive decision theories. All areas, that Jerusalem, in particular, in Israel in general, is very strong in. And I see a potential for Israeli academics to influence this field, as I said, indeed, they already have. I've worked to bring the message to these academics, and I've done a very little bit in that direction, um, speaking to some leaders in the area, but I don't feel that it's achieved its full potential. So if you could ask for a vision of something that I've actually tried to do, that uh, Jerusalem can be a very central part of
0: that scene. Joshua Fox, thank you so much. Okay, well, thank
1: you. Good talking to you, Ike. I really enjoyed that.
0: With thanks to Perrin Walker and Daniel Kenny. this is General Ike, Building Jerusalem.